Welcome to Below Sea Level, the podcast that takes a deep dive into the dynamic world of fintech and technology. I'm your host, George Fearstone, founder and CEO of SearchChain Partners. Here we explore the transformative power of AI, climate tech, ESG, data, and more through exclusive conversations with C-level executives in the fintech industry. David, thanks for joining me today. For the benefit of our, our listeners, could you please tell us a little bit about yourself and, and Signal AI? Well, thanks for having me, George. Great to chat to you today. I'm David Benningson. I'm the founder and CEO of Signal AI, which is a company I I started over 10 years ago now uh, in my parents' garage in North London, where all good AI startups should begin. I, I founded a business with my co-founder, Dr. Miguel Martinez, who's an academic. He did his master's and his PhD in machine learning and AI. And we founded the business 10 years ago when we saw the convergence of three major trends beginning to coalesce in the market. And, and I think those trends have become even more relevant and potent today than than even when they were, you know, what we saw 10 years ago when we started the company. The first of those was that there's never been a greater access to information and data. We've, we've never seen a greater volume and velocity of information available to us, but we've never actually found it harder to use that data to to drive effective decision making within our businesses. And there are these issues of of trust and quality and accuracy, uh, as well as the just the sheer volume of that data. The second big trend we saw was that organizations and business leaders are facing off against more risks and threats and issues and disruptions in their external environment than they ever have done before. You know, it seems every six months there's a new major geopolitical crisis or major macro event from COVID to conflicts to societal issues and ESG. But but what we saw was that businesses don't have effective radar to understand their external environment and use data and technology to, to be more predictive and preemptive in getting ahead of those risks and issues and disruptions. And then finally, we saw the emergence of machine learning and AI as a set of technologies we believe were we're going to turn those challenges faced by organizations into an opportunity. And so our thesis for the last decade has been to aggregate the broadest and most diverse data set that sits outside of a business, be ambivalent about media type, language, modality, structure, format, pull all of that data into a single unified platform and then apply machine learning and AI to that data to transform it from from unstructured information into more structured insight and intelligence and then help business leaders use that intelligence to, to essentially make better decisions, manage their reputation more effectively, get ahead of corporate risk in a more predictive and preemptive fashion, and also find the opportunities and white space that exist within their environment. Right. Thank you. And, you know, your your entry into tech is is slightly different to, to the majority. I mean, I would say 95% of founders that I've worked with in my 11 years in this space have come from banking and, and seen uh, an opportunity for innovation or have come from other tech companies. If you could just talk a little bit about your entry into tech and then what do you think gave you a competitive edge having come from a less conventional background and, and entry into, into the tech markets? Yeah, it was, it was a strange uh, journey and, and confluence of events that, that led me to, to founding Signal AI. And, and as you say, um, potentially not the most uh, conventional uh, background, if, if there is one for founders. <laughs> um, you know, I, I had studied English literature at university, then I had done a law degree and I had started working in the, the, the legal industry, but decided quite quickly that 
that that corporate law world just wasn't the right fit for me. And so I, I sort of pivoted my career uh, and went to work uh, for a while for, for Jamie Oliver, the, the chef and entrepreneur who at the time, you know, had a, had a really exciting business that was growing incredibly quickly and had many different aspects and tentacles to the, to the business. Obviously, he was known for being a chef and, and for the restaurants, but he had, you know, different projects and different businesses in a whole host of different areas for, from a not-for-profit perspective all the way through to, to media and, and content production. And I guess, uh, you know, in that time working for him, being someone who was, who was still very young at that time, at the, in my early 20s, sort of got exposure to uh, a very exciting and uh, dynamic entrepreneur and, and and was pretty inspired by Jamie's journey and the, and the work that he was doing, but also just his approach to business and this sort of intuitive and, and creative approach to to building a business. I'd also had exposure to entrepreneurship through my through my parents who who have run an executive search firm for thirty five years, boutique specialist in in sort of consumer industries. You know, having having arrived thirty five odd years ago from from South Africa with not much more than a, a brass farthing to rub together, you know, built, built a very well-respected industry-leading executive search firm. So I sort of grew up around entrepreneurship, around the dinner table, had this experience working for Jamie, and sort of knew that I wanted to start my own company. And then it was a sort of random confluence of events that ultimately led me to, to founding Signal. I'd had some exposure to a very basic early iteration of, of the technology through a project that we were working on at Jamie that that recommended recipes to folks um, called recipes. I had experienced using some of the legacy tools, market intelligence uh, and research tools that existed in the, the market during my time in law, sort of realized how sort of legacy a lot of those products and capabilities were. And then my parents, as part of their executive search firm, had sent out a newsletter for about 10, 15 years, and it went to about 30,000 of the most senior executives in the country and the consumer facing industries and I helped them move on to an email service provider one weekend and we found suddenly that we had the data of who was opening it and how frequently and we saw that you know some of the most respected and significant business people in the country were engaging with this you know daily curated newsletter and I was kind of taken back by that and the chairman and CEOs of many FTSE 100 companies why were they relying on this manually curated newsletter so I went and interviewed 20 of them and asked them how they got information and, and found quite quickly that when it came to understanding data and having insight on what was happening inside their own organizations, you know, they all had access to tools and processes and systems and capabilities. But when it came to understanding what was happening outside of their organization, you know, they read the FT, they spoke to peers in the industry, and they read a couple industry newsletters. And that seemed extremely uh, basic for some of the most sophisticated business leaders in the country. And so that was the original kernel. And I was encouraged by my parents uh, to, to start the business. They gave me some, some sort of pre-seed funding and access to the windowless garage in North London. And, uh, and, and I sort of started off from there. I think I've, I've reminded you of this story, but I remember bumping into you in, in Soho in, in 2013, and you were looking to meet with an investor about this, this idea that you had for a tech business. I mean, did you possibly have any idea of what you were going to be able to achieve with Signal at that point? And and looking back now, how how proud are you of your your accomplishments as a, as a founder and CEO? I think part of being a founder is probably a, a sort of insatiable restlessness that actually you haven't achieved that much. I, certainly, my my mindset has always been 
looking at the next horizon and, and what the next set of objectives are that I need to achieve for the business. So frankly, don't spend an awful lot of time but, but reflecting on achievements of the past and sort of have a tendency to quite quickly forget what we've achieved and move on to the next the next set of goals. I mean, I think at an early stage in the business, you know, I was 25 and I was pretty inexperienced actually when I founded Signal. So really the focus at that time in those early days was just, we had a big vision, but we were really just focused on achieving the next goal. And the next goal was, you know, building the version of the product. It was winning the first three customers. It was raising that first seed round. It was getting to 15 customers and 30 customers and 50 customers and 100 customers. And I never really thought much further beyond that next sort of 12 months set of objectives. We always had this North Star vision, but I was quite focused on execution and achieving the next set of objectives that were going to secure our success and secure our, our future for the business. As the company's matured and probably as I've matured maybe as a as a leader you know you you want to try and balance your sort of long-term view with your with your shorter term view and and I continue to believe that short-term execution you know drives value in the business and so that remains something that gives me energy um, and and where I spend a lot of my time with my leadership team and even myself uh, with customers prospects you know, the product and engineering team in terms of what we're going to ship next but I think it's very important to then balance that with the slightly uh, further afield view and be thinking about not just the next six or 12 months, but the next 24, 36, or even three to five years. Um, because there are decisions that you'll make in the short term that will have a significant impact, of course, on the long term. And so you need to be able to balance those those two worlds effectively. And so probably in, in more recent years, um, have been looking further afield and thinking more long term about where we want to take the business. You talk about the, the the maybe the lack of experience that you had as an early stage early stage founder. Do you think that there, looking back now, do you think there were were, were benefits that came as a result of of that? I mean, maybe a, a lack of of fear, maybe, or, or or the thought of failure, or commitments outside of outside of work. I mean, were there certain things that you think came as a real benefit as opposed to maybe being someone that had been in the industry for twenty years? Yeah, certainly. I think, you you know, I came with a, a, a real hunger and a real ambition to prove myself. I also had a absolute desire and thirst for learning. And I was able to, in a sense, use my inexperience and age as, as a sort of tool to, to attract folks who were much more experienced than I was and interest them in the business and interest them in me. And, and, and I surrounded myself with some phenomenal angel investors who had tremendous experience, phenomenal venture capital investors who also had incredible experience. And then over time, I built a, a fantastic board, you know, people like Archie Norman, the chairman of Marks and Spencer, Peter Granite, who was the CEO of Cision, and Laura Clayton, president of Thomson Reuters. So I've been able to sort of surround myself with these really impressive and experienced executives and operators and and learn from them quite quickly. So I think I, I certainly think it was a strength and it gave me a hunger and a drive and an appetite for learning. And also I, I in in some ways I wasn't biased in terms of my approach, particularly less maybe around building the tech company, but more around the user problem. So sometimes you can be encumbered if you've been in one industry for a long time 
because it's you know the way things were done in the past are the way things they should be done in the future and i didn't have that approach i certainly brought a fresh perspective i think in terms of how things should operate uh, for for our customers and i was able to challenge our customers because i was able to provide a sort of undiluted or unbiased perspective you know on the other side of the coin i made a huge number of mistakes partly because i'd never done it before you know and i didn't have the pet pattern recognition that a perhaps a second time founder would have had so certainly were i to build another business now i think the first few years would probably go a lot quicker because there was a lot of learning from myself and my my founding team in terms of what we were trying to build and the focus that we needed around that you make a brilliant point around hiring people that can add value and have skills maybe that you you didn't have at that at that stage i speak to c-level leadership teams all the time who work for for founders and ceos who are not willing to change their philosophy or change the, the the strategy for the business and and it's a huge reason why a number of these c-level guys end up end up leaving because they they you know they've they've worked in the in the industry for a number of years they've they've gained a huge amount of experience they're not joining a company necessarily to to take orders and, and implement strategies of a ceo they're joining to be able to contribute to to innovation and to growth and to the strategy of the business moving forward and i think that that probably was a huge contributor and, and you, you talk about that so that's that's really interesting I was at a tech conference recently, a London tech conference, and there was a, a senior partner from one of the big four consulting firms who was uh, was on the was on the panel of, of the of the talk about about AI, and they kind of threatened to the idea of 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 us in the future, the near future, having multi billion dollar companies that will have only three or four employees. Do you see the role of a CEO changing as a result of AI? And um, are you preparing for those types of, of changes as a, as a leader currently? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, I mean, to your first point, we, we probably already have companies that are valued at multiple billions with with a handful of employees, maybe not two or three. But but I mean, the, the scale with which organizations can now achieve uh, that sort of value with a, with a much more limited set of resources because of the capabilities we're seeing in AI, you know, that that, that, that moment has certainly already arrived. Uh, I think for larger enterprises, there's a couple critical things. Uh, you know, there's a lot of fear around AI taking people's jobs and certainly in, in the sort of high skill knowledge work environment, we get to see that that come to reality and I think it'll be some time before we we do see that however what I do think we'll, we will see and are starting to see already is it's not AI taking people's jobs it's people who know how to use AI taking people's jobs and so we will see a new version of the workforce who are supercharged and hyper empowered by their ability to utilize these advanced AI technologies in a very integrated and compelling fashion. And so we believe a lot in the opportunity and potential of the augmentation through AI. And obviously, you know, a big concept that's come to market being driven by by, by Microsoft is this concept of co-pilot capabilities, the idea that, you know, these technologies are going to work hand in hand seamlessly with, with knowledge workers and, and professionals and executives to enable them to be more efficient and to be more scalable. So I think for CEOs, they have to have an AI strategy. They have to figure out how to adopt, how to experiment, how to start integrating these technologies into their business. 
and also how to build the right governance and and systems around that so that they can manage these technologies safely you know no having no strategy is certainly not a strategy <laughs> you need a strategy and it needs to be a decisive one and then i think there's great potential and we're seeing phenomenal examples you know customers of ours gaining huge efficiency opportunities or generating revenue through the use of our data and insights you've got folks like alan and overy the law firm who brought in harvey and where I believe they're getting between four or five hours of efficiency per lawyer every week through the use of, of that technology. If you scale that up to thousands of lawyers, that's a big efficiency gain for a law firm. And there are many, many other examples where these technologies are starting to find their way into the enterprise context to create you know, significant and material value. And what we're, what we're saying to customers is, again, these technologies aren't going to replace you but they should supercharge you and they enable you to do the highest value work and the highest impact work and, and be able to automate the repeatable tasks um, where this technology is particularly good. With tech evolving so rapidly, is it the job of a founder and a CEO to track market trends and, and ensure that you guys are, are staying up to date with, with what's happening in, in the space? Or do you have people that, that, that work for you that do it? I mean, are there any techniques in particular that you'd recommend using to for other founders to to ensure that they stay ahead of the curve? Yeah, I think it's absolutely critical. I, I think one of the most important roles of a CEO is to be the sort of external radar for the business and to be able to sense, you know, emerging opportunities and risks that exist on the peripheral, uh, but but may become core. And so I think the ability for the CEO to have that that sort of 360 degree view of the business and be constantly using pattern recognition to spot those emerging trends, those things that are bubbling up, and then have the data to hand to inform what they're going to do about those emerging opportunities and risks is, is a fundamental part of, of the role. And, you know, that's a big part of our value proposition at Signal AI. We, we believe that we are giving CEOs and C-suite that external radar I, I think because businesses particularly global organizations the footprint is so large and complex now that it's impossible to do this just merely through manual methods anymore you can't you can't rely on just a couple industry events you know reading the press you know and, and having a twitter account the, the volume the velocity is is just too great and it doesn't enable CEOs to find the signal from the noise. There's there's just so much noise, so much polarization, unfortunately, so much misinformation that actually you need tools and technology that help you sift through that and spot those emerging risks and threats. And you know, one of the big uh, new launches that we've done recently is training our AI to spot um, a myriad of different corporate risk events and be able to then alert CEOs and C-suite when there is a major issue that is bubbling up, either with a supplier or a vendor or a key executive or, or even a competitor, because competitive context is really important. There's always the risk of contagion. What happens to your competitor might happen to you too. It may become an industry-wide issue. So being able to get this sort of real-time intelligence and insight and spot these emerging risks, critical part of, of, of a CEO's mandate. David, you, you touched upon it earlier in a couple of questions before, but you've hired a world-class board of directors with an incredibly diverse background, both from a corporate and an investor 
background with experience how imperative was it to create a board with a variety of skills and experiences to contribute to the strategic success of signal yeah i think building a uh, a diverse and and high quality board that that has a balance of skill sets and a diversity of perspectives is is absolutely critical i think one of the risks many venture back businesses find themselves in is having a very sort of homogenous board made up mainly of venture capital investors and VCs bring, you know, they, they should and, and, and hopefully do bring value to a scaling business. They have uh, the experience of being able to see patterns within their portfolio. They're able to, they're often very quantitative and analytical. So they have a, a perspective on data and performance and metrics. And they obviously have a good a perspective and sense of the macro environment funding environment the valuation environment etc but typically they're not operators and they don't necessarily bring to bear that operational experience and i think it was very important for me to to balance out venture capital uh, investor directors with non-exec directors who brought more tangible operational experience who actually know how to build and grow and, and scale a company and have done it themselves because doing it is very different uh, from observing it and we brought a real mix you know archie obviously doesn't come from the tech world you know archie is a, a titan of of building long-term sustainable businesses um he's actually a, in lots of ways a turnaround expert so he really knows how to deal with crises and with challenging times uh, he understands people organizations uh, organizational psychology dynamics um he's got an extensive and exceptional network Whereas Peter Granite is someone who's worked to scale businesses, both through organic building, but also through acquisitions. He's worked extensively with private equity. He really understands both the, the core industry we work in, which is selling into corporate comms, but he also sells extensive, his current businesses in corporate risk. So he really straddles those two markets. And Laura Clayton is a phenomenal uh, uh, commercial executive who's led global sales teams at places like Workday and now at Thomson Reuters. Um, and really understand B2B go to market. So we've we've combined this sort of venture capital experience with our current board, which has this, you know, really diverse and deep operational experience. And I think that makes for a much more uh, fertile board context where we can get very tangible advice, uh, insights and, and recommendations to help navigate the business. And do you think there's a certain stage for this is for founders in the earlier stage of their companies or or for for founders maybe that are, are kind of looking to build a a, a board or or an executive leadership team? Do you think there is a stage that a, a board should be built? and 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 just also for for people that aren't necessarily aware of what a board delivers in terms of a value add, what is the difference between the 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 board's value and maybe the exec the the exec leadership team? Well, to your first question, I, I certainly wouldn't be suggesting to founders to build a board too soon. You know, mm -hmm. I think it's uh, frankly ridiculous when I see sort of pre-seed investors requesting to, 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 to join a board. I mean, it's just way too early. I think even seed, frankly, is too early for a formal board. I probably, you know, there's just too much execution to get on with. Why, why, why bog the founders down uh, with sort of unnecessary governance at that point? They've just got to crack on and find product market fit. You know, maybe around Series A, Series B, where you've, you've started to find product market fit, you're starting to get repeatability and, and some early scale with customers. You've got your first, you know, a couple dozen customers, perhaps. 
and you're starting to think about how to grow and extend the business beyond that 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 feels like a, a good opportunity to start thinking about what what a board might look like but again even at that stage i'd be keeping it <clears throat> very very small and nimble and you want you know you want as mu- as much focus and attention on building and executing and as little governance and and red tape getting in the in the way of that and then i think as a business grows and you start to really embed the culture and you really start to think about scale you start to think about international expansion you know that is when a board can really be helpful to to help you navigate through that period and and think think through the next major strategic steps in terms of the difference between a board and, and an executive team you know a board's job is not to get involved in the operational day-to-day of the business. Their job is not to, in fact, often tell us what to do. It's to ask the right questions and to challenge the executive team on the strategy and on the direction that the business is going going into. It's about being a good sounding board. It's about sometimes holding up a mirror to the executive team to ensure that there is a sense of accountability um, and delivery. So their job is to advise, it's to counsel, it's to ask questions, it's to probe, and it's to be a safe space for the key strategic decisions to be discussed, um, the, the the ones that are really going to materially move the dial for the business. The executive team is to, to operate, to actually implement that strategy, is to execute um, and, and drive the strategy, and also to formulate what that strategy should be. So very important that the board don't step down into that role i think there needs to be a very safe distance between those two two functions and actually where issues emerge between boards and executives is where they is where particularly they overreach potentially uh, and try and do the job of the executive rather than be that safe um, and objective sounding board Obviously, I, I, you know, work in the in the the, the search and, and the fintech markets. And I remember you and I speaking must have been a couple of years after you set up the business and you'd hired a talent acquisition person, which I think was was rare for a business, a business of your size to be hiring at that stage. And it's now something that is almost more common than not across across the industry. How critical was it that you you know set a strategy for talent acquisition what qualities and attributes were you looking for at that stage and subsequently how have those kind of necessities and uh, requirements evolved and changed as the company has has scaled and evolved yeah i think i mean look talent is the is the lifeblood of the business it's it's the difference between us successfully executing strategy and 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 delivering what we need to do or not so um i think it's it's absolutely fundamental to the business and you need a great talent strategy and you need great uh, talent partners to help you deliver that strategy whether those folks are inside the business or 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 outside the business so i think it's a it's an absolutely critical partnership and probably the most fundamental differentiation between you, you know, being successful or not. You know, we found certainly during periods where we wanted to rapidly scale that building an in-house talent function for probably everything below VP level and below um, was the was the most effective and cost efficient way, frankly, for us to scale because we then had a team um, who really understood the business, who were working on talent day in day out. And it meant that we were rather than stopping and starting, we were just continuously looking for the best quality talent. And, you know, during particularly during the 2020 or probably 2019 to 2022 period, the talent market, as you know, was extremely competitive in tech. I mean, it was 
it was a, an absolute dogfight um, to to get the right talent, particularly in 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 high skilled functions like engineering and data science, etc. But that that being said, I think you know when it comes to executive search and more at the the VP plus level into the C suite, I think that's when having a strategic partner can be extremely valuable because there are many many different dimensions to ensure that you're going to land the right candidate and particularly to vet the cultural fit you know the competency fit is actually easier in lots of ways but really the the cultural fit the alignment the role alignment fit um to you know to deeply understand the psychology of that individual and of the business that are, that is recruiting that individual and ensuring that there there is the right mapping there because getting a C-suite hire wrong can be extremely expensive, you know, because typically it takes, you know, three to six months to onboard that person. By the time you found out that person is perhaps the wrong fit and done something about it, you may have lost a year and then you have to recruit a new person. So, you know, you can you can wipe out nine to, to 18 months worth of, of value just by getting the, the wrong hire. So, uh, yeah, making sure that that one nails those those key C-suite roles is 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 absolutely essential. Right. Just as a final point, could you tell our listeners what's going on for Signal at the moment? Is there anything exciting to look out for? What does the future hold for David and Signal? Yeah, lots lots of uh, exciting stuff going on. I mean, AI, as you as you know, is going through this tremendous hype cycle right now. We've obviously been doing it for ten years, so we, we feel like we were in the space and ahead of the curve. But but the new technologies and advances that are being made, particularly around large language models and and generative AI, are extremely exciting, and and the space is moving rapidly. And I think that that you know that that is then combined with a new level of interest and demand from the customer and the market, you know, for probably the first seven, eight years of building Signal, we were convincing large corporates and enterprises that they needed an AI strategy, and we had to convince them of that. Now that, the, the, you know, the screw has turned in the other direction, and we, we're getting a huge number of inbound requests from organizations and C-suite leaders who really want to define and build an AI strategy and getting a lot of downward pressure to, to, to do that. So I think this combination of the evolution of the technology, which we see particularly as an opportunity to transform the user experience. I think what ChatGPT has done is taught us to expect to be able to ask a question in any form we want and get back a really sophisticated response and Signal feel like we're extremely well positioned to deliver that response driven by the high quality access to data that we have and the advanced technologies that we produce so we can deliver a really highly customized, really sophisticated response for the specific sort of domains that we operate in. And then secondly, you know, starting to, to see a, an opportunity to unlock more and more senior leaders and help them answer more and more high impact questions, specifically around the management of their reputation and, and the management of their risk. Amazing. It's exciting times. David, thank you so much for your time and um, look forward to catching up again soon. Great. Thank you. Great.